Today's scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to, Christ, to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures, endures forever. forever. Amen. Well, good morning. So glad to be with you this new year, 2022. My name is Wei. I am the pastor of Arya of Gotham a campus ministry here in the city, and I call Exilic my home church. And I'm glad to be able to continue the DNA series with you this morning. Um, at the top of every year, we do this series to remind us uh, what is it about our name, why we call Exilic Church, what is our mission and our vision. Our mission is what we do, and vision is who we want to be, and you see our mission right there, inspiring thinkers to believe, inspiring believers to think, but today we will be talking about the vision of Exilic Church. What is it that we want to be as Exilic Church? What is it that we want as 21st century disciples that think critically and act positively? Let me say that one more time. That is our vision, who we are and who we want to be. We are 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. But why 21st century disciples? Well, while it's true that Jesus and his word are unchanging, we live in a fast-paced and ever-changing world. And, and so it's important that we talk about what does it mean as a disciple, as a follower of Christ in the here and now? And how do we think and act as encultured people of time, of our timeless truths? And what kind of world do we live in today in the 21st century? Well, for one, we live in a disease-stricken world. Uh, almost none of us, I, I dare say, none of us have not been infected, uh, affected this past two years by the COVID pandemic. It's contributed to the world that is increasingly polarized politically and fragmented as a society. We are more and more set against each other and in the name of expressive individualism, which many of you heard about in CGs this past two weeks, we've become more and more isolated, living in a digital age, and yet feeling more and more distant and disconnected. 
And yet in a time like this is why such clear vision of who we are as a church and who we are striving to be as a church is important. In his lecture, uh, The Political Captivity of the Faithful, uh, Dr. Nathan Hatch is a former president uh, of Wake Forest, gave his thoughts on our uh, polarized political scene and the danger of the church losing its unique witness by being overly enamored with political power. He says this after giving several solutions to the current day issues. He said, I think most of all, our nation needs communities of faith that give meaning, dignity, and love to 21st century people who are lonelier, more stressed, and with less sense of hope than any time we can remember. And so in the backdrop of the the world that we live in, I want to look at our church's vision using the letter of 2 Corinthians. This was one of uh, Apostle Paul's letters to the young church in Corinth, and specifically chapter five, verses 11 to 21. And along the way, we'll be looking at exactly these three main phrases of our church vision, that we are 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. Well, what is a disciple? Uh, It typically means that you're a student of some teacher, you're a follower of somebody who, for whatever reason, you've decided to listen and to imitate. Uh, For me, I grew up loving to play tennis. Uh, I grew up watching on TV Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras right here at Flushing Meadows at the U.S. Open. And I used to play myself. Unfortunately, my racket sits in my apartment unused since I moved here. But um, it was an important moment in my short, non-existent tennis career, um, that's playing it up, when in high school, I proverbially found my tennis rabbi. And, uh, and what happened was I switched from a two-hand backhand to a one-handed backhand. I don't know if any of you play tennis here. Anybody? Just a couple? Okay. Um, so that, that's a big deal. That's a pretty big change to make. Um, but... It completely, that one little shift completely changed my tennis game. I now had more power because now I have this kind of long, fluid whip action on my one-handed backhand. Um, I can now add variety to my shots because I can add backspin to my shots more easily. And I can reach shots that were usually out of reach before with two hands on my backhand side. Um, You kind of get the point, right, before I... Uh, tear something, but <laughs> there was that, that one little shift was a profound change in my entire tennis game because all because I became the disciple of this uh, a friend of mine who was this uh, one-handed backhand guru. Uh, well, even <laughs> even in a more profound way, what Paul says here in verse fourteen and fifteen is that in an exponentially uh, it was exponentially more life changing for him and for all who are disciples of Christ. And he says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died and that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul was so radically transformed by meeting this person, Jesus, the love of Christ, 
that it completely changed his life. And if you know anything about Paul's backstory, it's, it's pretty crazy. If you think about how the way he used to live, uh, he was a seethingly jealous and zealous to destroy Christian churches, to throw Christians into prison, to break up families and to do whatever means necessary to stop the efforts of anybody trying to follow Jesus. But now, he says, I no longer live for myself. I live for him who died and was raised for me. It it completely flipped the script of his life. And he had now a new goal and a new purpose in life. And not only that, you can see that Paul now had a, a new power, a new motivation, a stronger and better one that would get him up out of the stronger and better reason to get out of bed this morning. So what changed him? What radically changed Paul? It was the love of another. The love of another and not hate. It's the first thing he says in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Uh, other translations use the word compels. If you're old school, in KJV, constraineth. Uh, but I like how RVG Tasker puts it, a scholar, New Testament scholar. Paul is under the all-compelling constraint of Christ's love for him. The love of this person, Jesus Christ, had taken a hold of Paul. It gripped him. And now he was driven not by seething hatred for Christians, but compelled by Christ's great love for him. He said that now I live for Christ. And that's what a disciple is. And if you read the rest of his stories, or read his story, and look at this in his letters or the book of Acts, you see that this love drove him and, and his companions to cross land and sea and to endure all manner of suffering, physical suffering, relational suffering of losing friends, backstabbed by people that he thought were his friends, angry mobs that want him dead, and so on, all because of the love of Christ. And I posit to you that I don't think there's anything else uh, strong enough to motivate a man to do that. A blind ambition, a sense of obligation, fear, guilt. I mean, surely there are other motivations that work, maybe for a season, but nothing else can quite drive a person to live as Paul did, as the love of Christ. He had now an all-consuming passion, a new power, and a new purpose. Are you intrigued by that? Do you want that? What is it about Jesus that so radically changes somebody, that radically rearranges one's life and gives so much freedom and meaning? And are we tired of how we're living and, and, and seeing our honest pursuits of caring for another, sabotaged by ourselves, that I invite you to seek to understand who Jesus is and why is that people uh, won't, won't meet him without being changed. So this is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And I promise you it's an, it's the big, it'll be the biggest adventure of our lives, bigger than we can ever dream of. 
It means that we have come to know God, this God who loves us with a love that is better than life. It means that you've thought critically, as our vision says. You've thought critically, as, as it says here, you've concluded that this man died for my sins, was raised so that I might find new life in him. In the way we now live and act, we no longer live merely for ourselves, but we were made for so much more. We were made for God and for others. So now look with me at verse 16 and 17. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. So we've talked about already what it means to live in a 21st century as a disciple of Christ who thinks critically about who Jesus is. Like Paul, we've concluded that our sinful self died in his death, and surely as he is alive, I am alive with him. But how does that change how we see and think of our world today? How does it change the way that we see and think about the people around us? How does being controlled, compelled by Christ's love change all that? So I'm going to pick on a friend, um, and I've already warned him. I have a friend and his wife who moved to Brooklyn for work not long ago. Some of you might know Sam and Trish. They recently became members of Exilic. And uh, so before moving here, Sam flew up, and we were looking at apartments. I was helping him look at apartments, and I, I just only recently knew what it's like to try to find an apartment in New York City. And so we were walking through Times Square together, and like multiple times, maybe two or three different times, people would stop Sam and try to sell him drugs. But they would completely ignore me, okay? So that happened the first time, I'm like, okay, whatever. And then I think later in the same day, it happened again. Someone stopped Sam, we're walking together down the street, they look at him, they stop him, and they try to sell him drugs, but they completely ignore me. I'm like, hey, what's up with this? You're discriminating against me. I'm now offended, right? And they don't even bother selling to me. It's it's so messed up. Um, It's it's funny because they were probably looking at Sam and his tattoos in the summertime and thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, he's the type. But they're so wrong because if you know anything about Sam, you know that he cares more about being healthy than probably anybody else that you and I know. Uh, All he does is lift weights, do cardio, um, eat his macros, take health supplements. He doesn't drink any alcohol. He doesn't smoke anything. Uh, None of that. Well, meanwhile, pastors at Zillick are getting me into smoking cigars. And uh, we hang out, we're drinking whiskey. (laughs) So they're judging Sam and probably me um, on outward appearances or I could even say it uh, outward and worldly appearance. So Paul is talking about here in verse 16 and 17. He says, now with, and and I'm just interpreting him, we are now with renewed eyes and minds, controlled by the love of Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
When no more do we think, see, or judge people solely based on outward appearance or worldly eyes. And um, you know, if you look back with me in your Bibles or your phone, back in verse 12, uh, he started talking about this because the Corinthians, so they were drawn to flashy speakers, and Paul was unimpressed, um, unimpressive to many of them. And they were causing divi- that was causing divisions in the church. So Paul says he's writing this to them so that they may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Judging and treating people solely based on outward appearances, that was true back in Roman times and is true today in Manhattan, in New York City. Thinking ill and having assumptions about somebody else based on their skin color, the way, judging people by the way they dress, summing them up that way, uh, or, or the shape of their body, or how young or old they look, whether they look like they are, have money or not. Um, a camera, a, a Canon camera ad 30 years ago went with the slogan, image is everything. And I believe if you look around our world and culture today, we've doubled down even more so on that idea. But Christ's love, what it does, what Paul's talking about here is that it allows us to truly see people, their needs, their inner beauty, to see them as Christ sees them. Thinking critically means that we now have new eyes, spiritual eyes to see the world and see others in the way that Christ sees them. Paul says then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. I want you to think with me. What would this do for us as a church if we would see each other as Christ sees us, as new creations shaped by his hand? It would bring about what is so lacking in our polarized world today, and that's unity and love. Instead of, if we were judging each other constantly based on outward appearances, we're going to belittle people in our minds. We're going to ignore people because we don't think they have anything to offer us. We're going to continue to carry racist tendencies that are unchecked. We're going to be divided as a community, and we won't be learning and helping one another. A famous thinker, a Christian philosopher and writer, C.S. Lewis, in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory, said, the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which you saw it now would be strongly tempted to worship. So he's talking about that day when we have our perfect resurrection bodies in heaven in all glory. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, arts, cultures, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life to ours is that of a gnat, but it is immortals to whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. If we truly believe, if we truly believe that Christ has made us a new creation, that he's forgiven us and given us this life and a new name and identity, then what would happen when we look at our friends and our brothers and sisters next to us, for, this, for which the same is true of, we would then not judge them simply 
and solely based on outward appearances. We would no longer regard others, as Paul says, according to the flesh. We would love them, cherish them. We would value them. We would bless them and be blessed by them. And if there were issues, we could work towards reconciliation together. And that brings us to our last point. Look with me at the last part of this passage, 18 to 21. We've talked about disciples controlled by the love of Christ, thinking critically by no longer regarding each other according to the flesh. And now we'll tease out more of what it means to live to the one who died and was raised for us. We act positively now. We think critically, not regarding those according to flesh. We act positively as those who have been handed and given by Jesus himself the ministry of reconciliation. Verse, you see this at verse 18, verse 19. We're told that we have the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, it explains what this ministry is like. That on behalf of Jesus, we beg and implore and persuade others to be reconciled to God. But why is this necessary? What is broken? We know reconciliation is necessary when there is a broken and fractured relationship that needs to be restored because of differences or offenses between two sides. And we live in that world today, don't we? Broken, fractured relationships in our families, in our work, in our cities, in our neighborhood. And the reason the Bible gives is the ultimate reason why that all our relationships are so messed up is because we have a broken relationship, first and foremost, with God. And yet in Christ, we've now become reconciled to him. Because Jesus and suffer, suffered and died and took our punishment for the sake of our trespasses, verse 19, we are now counted righteous in God's eyes. Not just forgiven and not guilty, though that is very important, as if we have a clean slate, but we are as if we are fully and per, as we have fully and perfectly obeyed God, and therefore we are reconciled to Him, and He is pleased with us. So now, as those that have been reconciled to God, we as disciples are called to act positively, to represent Christ as His ambassadors, calling for others to be reconciled to God by believing in Christ. But as I said before, there's a whole horizontal dimension to this, and I'm not sure even if you don't believe what you believe about God, we know from the earliest days that people do nasty things to one another. Time has not changed this. Advanced technology has not changed this. Better education has not necessarily changed this where there are wars and violence and oppression and racism and robbery in our, in our country and world, and the list goes on, we continue to commit atrocities against each other. And the other side retaliates, and the strife never ceases. I just want to share with you a testimony of someone who's very striking, whose testimony is very striking to me. His name is Dr. Michael O. Um, he is a Korean-American pastor who's currently the CEO of the Lausanne movement. It's a global Christian movement. It's all about getting the world's Christian leaders to collaborate together on doing world evangelism. And he's, what's happening today is what Paul knew would happen, but could only dream of in his time. 
Um, but all that could have ended even before it started because several years before Michael came on to Lausanne, he was contemplating about being a missionary to Japan. And if you know anything about Japanese and Korean relations, you know that there is deeply rooted animosity and mistrust because of untold horrors of the wars, invasions, forced cultural assimilation, Korean women used as military sex slaves, and so on, just to name a few. Under Japanese occupation, Michael's own father was given a Japanese name that was not allowed to speak Korean or use his real name, or he would be beaten. Michael speaks of how his anger would have kept him from being a missionary in Japan, but it was the message of reconciliation that he remembered and and knew that though he was an enemy of God, that he could be reconciled and brought into God's family that caused Michael to be able to forgive the Japanese people, to put away his Ivy League degree, to pack up his family, and to go to a nation that he naturally had every reason to hate, to hold out Christ's message of reconciliation as one reconciled to God himself. Michael and his team helped start a seminary in Japan called CBI. And if you remember Kuni Hota, who was here this past summer, sharing with you about his ministry in Japan, he was actually a student of Dr. Michael O's. This is the power of Christ's love for positive, positive action. This is what we are called to as modern-day disciples to implore people to be reconciled to God. But don't miss the horizontal implications of this ministry of reconciliation in our fractured and polarized world. It means that we are also then to implore and to seek the reconciliation of individuals and people groups that have been alienated from each other, whether that be a broken marriage or strife between family members, all the way to racial reconciliation between people groups with deeply seated deeply rooted animosity. This is the kind of hope our action will bring in our day of tribalism and fractured society. Or as Trevin Wax says, grace that shatters the false dichotomy of us versus them. But I can understand. I can understand, though, if you're hesitant or you're skeptical of this. Maybe it sounds too hard. You've tried. Head didn't work. I carry scars from that. You think maybe this is the kind of naive thinking, a love talk that gets people pistol whipped and taken advantage of. And we wouldn't be that you wouldn't be the first to think that. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And back in 1957 in Ebony magazine, someone asked him, Is love really the solution to the race problem? Are there not times when a man must stand up and fight fire with fire? I will grant that love, as Jesus lived it, is the ultimate ideal, but it it seems to me that preachers ought to be honest and tell folks if they live by the the turn-of-the-other-cheek doctrine, the sharp boys, this this 50s, sharp boys out here in the cold world, strip them and boil them in oil. Why don't you preachers admit that love in the highest sense of the word is impractical in this world today? It's a little bit long. I I want you to listen to what Dr. King said. He says, I'm convinced that love is the most durable power in the world. It is not the expression of impractical idealism, but of practical realism. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, 
Love is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. To return hate for hate does nothing but intensify the existence of evil in the universe. Moreover, love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down and destroys. The aftermath of fight fire with fire method, which you suggest is bitterness and chaos. The aftermath of the love method is reconciliation and the creation of the beloved community. Physical force can repress, restrain, coerce, destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that. Yes, love, which means understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill, even for one's own enemies. It is the solution to the race problem. And then he finishes with this. Often love is crucified and buried in a grave, but in the long run, it rises up and redeems even what that which crucifies it. I'm reminded of what the word says, that not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. Exilic Church, we are 21st century disciples called to pray, love, and act. I just have two quick applications and I'll wrap this up. Um, two words, prayer and proximity. It's very hard to love somebody that you don't pray for. If, and if you don't know what to do um, in a relationship, start by praying. And if you, for some reason, can't pray, ask somebody to pray together with you. Second, proximity. Proximity, what I mean by that is to get close. Get whatever it means to get close to somebody. Um, You can read books ad nauseum and they have their place, but unless we strive for relationships with people of a different ethnic and racial background, we won't be affected when we hear that news. It would just be numbers of death and details as if there were some far, some, uh, a faraway country, people from a faraway place. Only in real relationships centered in Christ will we be able to be uh, able to make mistakes and be forgiven of them, learn from them, and forge actually a deeper understanding and bond. And then we will care when the news comes on. I want to close with this. I want to come back to the love of Christ that we started with because it's all about what it means to follow Christ in the 21st century. A life of living, acting, and thinking, controlled, compelled by the love of Christ. We've seen that whether in the first century with the Apostle Paul, or the 20th century with Dr. King or C.S. Lewis, or the 21st century with Dr. Michael O. It would be the same today that would cause us to live for more than our just ourselves, to carry out faithfully the ministry of reconciliation given to us. And no matter the unloved you received, seeking to follow Christ, no matter the lack of love that you might have grown up in, I want you to know that your Heavenly Father loves you. Loves you. And this love, it changes you. It sets you free from yourself and your two-bit dreams of delusion. And it takes hold of you. And it comes into your life and it won't leave you. And it won't leave you alone. And then he lovingly deals with your hurt and your pain and your grief and your fears and your worries and your guilt and all of your shame. And Jesus Christ becomes your holy obsession, an all-consuming passion whose love is better 
than life. And by God's grace, may you and I, may we be able to say like the Apostle Paul, I am controlled, compelled, constrained by the love of Christ. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. Oh, that would be without him, would we live in selfishness and anger and the broken relationships we're in. We thank you that he willingly died and gave up his life so that we might be reconciled to you. And Lord, help us to be call, uh, help us to call others to be reconciled to you and to seek the reconciliation between one another and people. And that is a a good news. That is would be would that be good news in our day and age. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.